Now, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things to do is to attend a little kid's birthday party. And the good thing about a little kid's birthday party is there's generally lots of what? Lots of noise. And what does everyone bring? They bring gifts. They bring presents. And that's why when you're a little kid, your favorite thing is your birthday party. In fact, you want everybody to come because you know the price of admission to the party is the presents. And, you know, when you get to an adult birthday party, it's not so clear. You know, what do you get for a 50- or 60-year-old guy who, who really needs someone to come through and clean his place out? I mean, <laughs> maybe a cleaning service or an organizing, a personal organizer or something like that. Uh, but, but sometimes there's this little out we put on the uh, bottom of the invitations. It says, please don't bring any presents except your accept your presence. And there's, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that because the, the problem with getting old is you got too much stuff, generally, and sometimes not enough friends. And if, as an old person, you get to the place where you turn 60 or 70 and a dozen people will come around and have dinner with you in your honor, you feel like you are rich and abundantly provided for indeed. Because the best things in life, I think you, you learn to discover, the best things in life are actually not things. The best things in life are things that money can't buy. And, uh, and the best gift that any of us can give us, give, in fact, the most expensive gift you can give anybody is a little bit of yourself because there's only so much self to go around you know it doesn't matter if you can accumulate a lot of money you can get a lot of things for a lot of people but you only have one you you only have 24 hours a day you only have seven days in a week and so giving of yourself for a minute or an hour is the most generous most, most the fanciest thing you can give in a way and the gift, we, we talk about the gifts of Christmas, we've been talking about them, the gift of salvation, the gift of God's love, the gift of mercy, but the ultimate gift, sort of the meta gift that is behind all of these is that God gives himself. You will call, the, the angel says to, to Joseph, this is a fulfillment of the prophet, of what the prophet Isaiah said, you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And that, that is the ultimate gift. That at Christmas, it's not just that God gives us blessings, it's that God blesses us with himself, with his presence. And that's what Christmas means to humanity. God has come down and God is with us. God has become one of us. God walked among us and God is with us. And that changes everything. You think about this, just it's a fact of life. You're defined by, all of us are defined by who we are with, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and that goes for pretty much every area of life. Question of who are you with? Who are you with professionally defines where your career is going. Who are you with uh, personally? Who are you with romantically? Who you're with ultimately tells us who you are, right? And, and that's why those connections that we make are so important. And if you're not with anybody, you have to wonder, are you anything? 
What the Bible says, what the Bible offers you and me is the opportunity to be redefined by this. When we come to understand that we're defined by the fact that God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Then all of a sudden, who you're with professionally, who you're with personally, who you're with relationally, who you're associated with socially, that becomes secondary because I've got a new source of identity. God is with us. And that promise is made real for us through the first Christmas. So what I want to talk about is that, that promise, God with us. First God, then with, and then us. First of all, what does Christmas mean? It means God has come down. That that baby is not another teacher. That baby is not another sign. That baby is God incarnate. That's the central miracle of Christianity. That's the central miracle of, of, uh, of Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. God broke into history and became one of us. God became man. That promise was actualized in the first Christmas. John 1 puts it this way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, we know of Jesus as a person who was born, a historic person. We know of Jesus as a teacher. We know of Jesus as a great example. People have pictures of him in their yards and things like that. But ultimately, the thing that makes Jesus important is the fact that he was and is the very Son of God, and that in the person of Jesus, the human and the divine are unified without mixture, confusion, separation, or division for all eternity. And because of Jesus, we can be connected to God. And, you know, we think about the life of Jesus, and people read the story of the life of Jesus, and they say, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. He was a good teacher, and he was a remarkable example, and they, th they say things like that. But, but if you read it closely, you realize that if Jesus couldn't have been just a good teacher because a good teacher and a good example wouldn't have said the kinds of things that he said. Remember, uh, at one point, Jesus looks down at a, a young man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And remember what the teachers of the law said when he did that? They said, this is the, the next slide, Alan. Yeah, that one. Some teachers of the law were sitting there and they were thinking, why is this fellow talking like that? Only God can forgive sins. They're like, Jesus has no authority to forgive sins. It's God's job to forgive sins. And, and there's a logic contained in that, right? Because, I mean, if, uh, if uh, say, say, Ben here punches Reese, and I see it, and I'm really feeling bad for Reese, and, and, I, and so I, I go up to Ben and I say, Ben, I saw you punched Reese, and, and that, was, that was mean, but, but I forgive you. <laughs> it would kind of miss the point, <laughs> because the person who sinned against has to do the forgiving, right? That makes sense. I can't, I can't forgive Ben for punching Reese. Only Reese can do that. And in the same way, what the teachers of the law were getting at is, this guy can't go around telling people their sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And so Jesus made it clear that he wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a model. He was something completely other. He was God in human form. And that's why Jesus can forgive us our sins, because he is God. And so th this miracle of the incarnation, you know, today 
we're, uh, there's a lot of different ideas of who God is and, and what God might look like and what it might look like for God to come in human form. And people all the time are kind of com ex com uh, claiming that they are God. But in, in Jesus' day, particularly with the Jewish concept of God that he was working with in that context, it was completely outrageous for someone to claim that they were God and man in, in one person. It was completely unthinkable for them. And that's why when Jesus made that claim, and as he goes through his life, he makes it more and more explicitly. At one point, uh, he says to the people, he's arguing with them about the teachings of Abraham. And then to, to sum up his argument, he says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes on himself the title of God, the name of God, the, the great I am was the the name that they gave to God. So, so he was, Jesus was going around claiming to be God, and that's what made, one of the things that made, made people so crazy in his day. But apart from Jesus being God, the rest of his life doesn't really make sense. The rest of his teaching doesn't really make sense. His decision or his, his death on a cross just becomes a pathetic tragedy instead of the hope of the world. And so when we look at Christ and we look at Christmas, the first thing to see is that it's God himself who's come down. Like one of the Christmas songs that you hear in the mall says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus is our Emmanuel. The hope of Christmas, the hope that we have is God has become one of us. So it's God, but it's not just God, it's God with us. The, it's the presence of God with us. The presence of God is actually everything in all of our lives. In the Old Testament, there was a clear understanding that the presence of God was the most important thing. And there's sort of this, this tension you have in the Old Testament. On the one hand, the people of God were desperate for God's presence in their life. And on the other hand, they were terrified of God's presence in their life. And uh, um, Exodus 33 is a remarkable passage because it shows both of these in one chapter. If you're a Bible reading type, read Exodus 33 later today. But uh, in Exodus 33, if you'll remember the story, Moses is leading the people through the wilderness toward the promised land, and the people start worshiping this golden calf. And so the first thing God says to them is he says, God says to Moses, depart, go from here, you and the people you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give the land. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So the people fall into sin, and, and God says, God says, okay, you guys can have the promised land. I'm even going to send you an angelic escort to help you conquer it. But the catch is, I'm not going to go with you. I won't be with you in the promised land. He says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. And you would think the people would say, if they were like me, they would say, okay, that's pretty good. We'll go to the land of milk and honey. We'll enjoy ourselves there. We'll, we'll, we'll arrive. And, you know, we won't have to bother with uh, church on Sunday because, you know, God, God has left us. But when the people heard this disastrous word, it says, they mourned. And Moses said to God, 
If your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. Think about that. These people are wandering in the wilderness. They're on the cusp of the promised land, and, and, and God says, okay, just go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And, and their response is, no, we can't go to the promised land unless you go with us. The promised land won't be the land of promise without God's presence in our life. I think there's a lot we could learn from the people of Israel as, as, as messed up as they were and as incompetent as they were so many times. They gave us an example. They showed us a lot about life in America, that you can have everything this world has to offer. You can have all the material things and all the physical things and all the practical things that your heart can dream of, but if you don't have the blessing of God, if you don't have the presence of God in your life, what's it really worth? If you arrive in the promised land, but God isn't there with you, you don't want to be there because it's not heaven anymore. It's the other place. But on the other hand, in, ex in ex Exodus 33, what you see is we can't handle the presence of God. So then, then they're going through this time. It's really interesting. They're going through this argument with God, this negotiation with God. And God is, God is trying to get rid of these people. And then Moses says, God, show me your glory. And he said, I'll make, and God said to Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face because nobody can see my face and live. So Moses is desperate to see the glory of God, and God says, I can't show you my glory. I can't show you my presence, because if you saw my presence, it would absolutely destroy you. So on the one hand, they're desperate for God's presence, and on the other hand, they can't face God's presence. You know, the symbol of God's presence in, for the Old Testament people was the big building called what? What was that bu building called? The temple, the temple. And, but remember how the temple was constructed? There was a place where, where all the regular people could go and they could pray. And then there was a place where only priests could go. And then there was a place called the Most Holy Place, which was the altar of God. Remember that? And only the high priest went in there and only once a year. And when the high priest went in there, he would pray to God, but they were terrified of what might happen to the high priest if he, if he hadn't been living right at that time or something like that. And so what they would do, according to tradition, they, they'd tie a rope around the high priest's waist. Because if that guy goes in, in for his one, the, the annual visit into the most holy place and gets struck dead, nobody's going to go in there and get him. <laughs> He's just going to be there. So they put a rope around him so in case that happened, if they heard a loud pop, they would know just to start pulling that rope out and they could clean up the things on the outside of the holy place. Because as much as they were all built around, their, their whole faith was built around getting into the presence of God, they couldn't handle the presence of God. And that's what the Bible tells us until Christmas Day when God comes as a baby, a little baby, a helpless baby, born to a peasant girl. And and her fiancé there in a little stall in Bethlehem. Think about that, a baby, the, 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 the most vulnerable, the most dependent form of humanity that we know of, and that is God incarnate. All of a sudden, the presence of God 
is boiled down to that little eight-pound bundle of joy because now God is with us and we can approach God and we can be in the presence of God and we can know God and we can belong to God because God has come down and you'll call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And so who is this baby? What's Christmas about? It's about God himself coming down. It's about God being with but it's also about us. So the question, I guess the question that's begged there is, who is us? And the Bible gives us some hints about who the us is in the Christmas story, because the us is Mary and Joseph. You know, they were peasants from a little country town, three days journey north of Jerusalem. They were nobodies from no, nowhere. Joseph was a young carpenter trying to make it in the world. And then his birth was announced to shepherds, certain poor shepherds in fields where they lay. He came to Mary and Joseph. He came to certain poor shepherds. But then on the other hand, there was Herod, the king of, of Israel, and he was just disturbed to know that maybe the Messiah had been born. There was Caesar Augustus, the king of the Roman Empire at the time, and he didn't even know about Jesus. He didn't even care about Jesus. And as you go through Jesus' ministry, you see this pattern reemerging. The religious elites were all turned off by Jesus, but the religious outcasts were all drawn in by Jesus. In fact, the religious elites gave Jesus a name. You know, the good, good religious people, they gave, gave Jesus a name. They said, you know, look at that guy. He thinks he's important, but really he's a friend of sinners. And they thought they were insulting him, but Jesus owned that as the highest compliment. He said to the moral failures, the, the spiritual failures, those, those who were on the outside, he said, I'm going to your house today. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, let's make a deal. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you might be rich and young and powerful, but you can't afford it and you don't have anything to offer me. And then right after that, a little baby is brought to Jesus. And, and his disciples are like, he doesn't have time for that. But Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me, for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Every power structure, every, every hierarchy, Jesus turned upside down. It was the poor, it was the children, it was the powerless who he was with. And it was the insiders, it was the elite, it was the powerful and the important who were always pushed, who, who were always pushed away from him. He didn't come to build an entourage. He wasn't a celebrity looking for other celebrities to hang out with. He came to be a savior of the world. This is how the presence of God works. This is the, the gift that you're looking for and that you're waiting for. It's not something that you can earn or deserve or achieve. Jesus, got, Jesus didn't come down as a celebrity looking for other celebrities to hang out with. He didn't come down looking for an entourage to make him feel important or people who would recognize his fame and, and glory. He came as the son of a carpenter. He worked as a carpenter for all those years. He welcomed little children. He welcomed the desperate. He welcomed the poor. He welcomed those who were mourning. He welcomed the sick and the, the disabled. 
and he welcomed and helped anyone who came to him who was willing to recognize that they had a serious need. Everyone who recognized their need received a gift to him, a gift from, from him. And what the Bible tells us is ultimately, if you have everything this world has to offer, but you don't have Emmanuel, God with you, then it's really not worth having. Then, then it's going to fade away and it's going to prove disappointing in your life. But on the other hand, if and when you lose everything this world has to offer, all the material things this world has to offer, all the personal things this world has to offer, even health and life itself, you're ushered into his presence. And it says in his presence, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will finally have passed away because now the dwelling of God is with us. That's the present you need this Christmas. That's the present I need. That's the present we all need. That present is the presence of God in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that when you came, you veiled your Godhead in a little baby so we could know that there is a way that we can approach you, a way we can make it into your presence, and it's through him and in him. And I pray that you would make that real to each and every one of us now as we, as we continue to celebrate the hope that we have because of Christmas. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And 1 John.